I've been here so long, I'm so old that I kind of sometimes forget where I am. I think this is Wheaton Bible Church, right? Well, in spite of the soggy weather, we are glad you are here. I am Rob Boo. I have been the senior pastor since Noah's flood. And it's simply because I love you guys and you guys have just been wonderful. And I am so thankful uh, for the ministry here. We are in a series we are calling Restored. Our God, if our God is anything, he's a God of restoration, right? He's a God of reconciliation. He's a God of redemption. And and to tease this out, what we are doing is we are looking at, at one of the greatest difference makers, game changers, problem solvers in all of the Old Testament. A Jewish layman by the name of Nehemiah, who almost single-handedly brought about the physical and spiritual restoration of an entire city, the city of Jerusalem. Because of the largeness of his heart and his profound social conscience, Now, as I've been working through uh, these different chapters, it occurred to me at one point that if Nehemiah were a high school student today, he'd be the guy in the school that would be leading a couple different Bible studies, inviting his friends always to join him. Every now and then he'd grab a group of students and say, hey, let's go into the city, let's minister to street people. He'd take a mission trip. Uh, with his friends here and there as time allowed. He'd be the guy in the school saying, how can we be difference makers on the football team, in the orchestra, in our school, in our community? I say that because so many students spend their lives on themselves. And Nehemiah would have spent his life on others as we see him here. Just this week, I got a a note from a guy in our church that included a copy of a letter he sent to the governor of the state of Illinois. And in the letter, and it was a wonderful letter, uh, this fellow believer was very direct but very respectful. And he protested a recent bill our governor had signed into law, a bill mandating LBGTQ and its history and contributions be taught in the public schools of Illinois. Now, I do not want you to misunderstand. I am not anti-gay. Wheaton Bible Church is not anti-gay. If you um, have same-sex attraction, you're in the lifestyle, you are welcome here. Everybody is welcome here, right? I mean, we understand that. We're a welcoming church. And let me just say parenthetically, it's one thing to greet people at the doors. It's another thing for us to be welcoming. And we do that together, all of us. We're a welcoming church. But here's the problem with the legislation. The problem is uh, that it just smacks of discrimination. We're going to teach this, it's mandated by law, but we can't teach this, don't even mention God. 
And here's where I'm going. I think if Nehemiah as an adult lived in the state of Illinois today, he'd be writing letters. He'd be making calls. He'd be gathering a group of people uh, together to, to think deeply about, you know, how in a winsome way can we stand for biblical values and, and justice? Is it this issue? Is it late-term abortion? Is it another issue? Uh, isn't this why many of you adopt children? Isn't it why you do foster care, safe families, tutor and pointe? Befriend refugees? Serve on school boards? Uh, committees at work, uh, councils or task force in your neighborhoods and, and our, our communities. To be a believer in Jesus Christ is to be salt and light. It's not an option. Jesus commands us. And if those two metaphors mean anything, they mean that Jesus is commanding us to be difference makers, game changers, problem solvers, wherever we are, with the people and places around us. And what an opportunity we have. And so today, what I want to do is I want to Talk about what that might look like. I really want to talk especially about what's underneath that, that uh, motivates that, ignites that, and sustains this. How we can have the, largest, the largeness of heart and the social conscience that Nehemiah had as he sought the restoration of Jerusalem. So I want to invite you to stand with me as we're going to read... Uh, several paragraphs in Nehemiah chapter 5. I'm going to start in Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 1. This is a highly interesting section of God's word. So we read, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Now some were saying, We and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order, in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and the officials, and I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. Now, most of us don't like meetings. <laughs> Nehemiah is calling a large meeting. And this large meeting changes Jerusalem. So be careful what you say about meetings. All right, let me find where I am. And I said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. And now you are selling your own people, the Jews, only for them to be sold back to us. So let me explain this. The Jews were being sold to Gentiles to get out of debt or different things. I'll talk about that in a, a minute. The Jews then bought the Jews 
back out of slavery to the Gentiles only to buy the Jews into slavery of other Jews. And they kept quiet because they could not find anything to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. There's a debate whether Nehemiah was doing it. It's unclear. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. One percent of the money, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil. We will give back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. At this the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. You may be seated. Now, when we get to chapter 5, we're about two months, not quite two months, into the restoration of the walls of Jerusalem. We're at least some weeks. And as I'll mention, there's been one problem after another, but here we come in chapter 5 to, I think, one of the saddest problems at all of all. And unfortunately... It's not uncommon because here the problem emerges from the people of God who are at odds with one another. And it's a, this isn't an external problem, it's an internal problem. And so let me tease it out. Let me show you what's going on here. Let's start with verse 2. So there's a hunger crisis. People can't get grain. Now why? Well, one of the reasons is Nehemiah had asked all the farmers and all the fields, all the vineyard growers to stop what they're doing to temporarily give themselves to rebuilding the walls because Jerusalem is currently defenseless. So they leave their crops. There's crop failure going on. Because the crops are unattended, they're coming to Jerusalem, and so there's a scarcity of grain. But there's another reason, and we just read that, there's a famine also going on. And as a result of the famine, people are having to take loans on their fields, on their produce, in order to feed their large families. These people had large families, 10, 12 more kids. And But furthermore, they also have to pay taxes to the king. By the way, property taxes have been around a long time. And now it, it, it gets more difficult, it gets more complicated. Because of debt and the loans, sons and daughters were being sold into slavery. Now, I do not want you to misunderstand. This is not slavery as we've experienced it in the United States. This is the ancient Near Eastern common practice of debt slavery, where parents will give, sell into slavery, to use the language, uh, a son or a daughter, so that they can pay off the creditor's loan that the family, their family owes the creditor. Now, the Old Testament acknowledges this practice. 
but it demands that anyone sold into debt slavery must be released at the end of six years. It cannot go on according to the Old Testament beyond these years. So this is creating a crisis, uh, the taxes are creating a crisis, the loans, the famine, and it's just a bad deal right now. But worst of all is what the Jews are doing to one another. Look at verse 7. They're charging interest. Wealthy Jews are charging poor Jews interest. The rich are oppressing the poor. The strong are oppressing the reach, reach, the rich. And the Old Testament strictly forbids Jews charging interest to other Jews. They're living in sin. And what's going on here is that these wealthy Jews, because of their greed, because of their indifference, because of their self-centeredness, were creating oppression. So the problem Nehemiah is facing here in chapter 5 is the social sin of oppression, economic injustice, contributing to that overtly. It's a social sin of the strong oppressing, like I said, the weak. And as a matter of fact, as we study the Old Testament, what is so very interesting is this is one of Israel's great sins throughout its history. 300 years earlier, the prophets tell us that Israel's oppression of the poor was one of the reasons God brought about the destruction of Israel by the Babylonians, later the Assyrians. So look at what Amos says, speaking hundreds of years before Nehemiah. This is what the Lord says. For three sins, uh, these aren't errors of judgment, these are sins of Israel. Even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent, the Israelites sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and they deny justice to the oppressed. This is Jesus' point in the parable of the Good Samaritan. How can you Jews walk by this guy bleeding, beaten in the road? How can you ignore him? Uh, Do you call yourself a good neighbor? Good neighbors don't walk by. So I wonder this morning, how are you being a good neighbor? Or are there areas that you're just walking by, areas you're just neglecting? Now, we can't do everything. I'll say that a couple times. but We can do one or two things. What about some of the things that are shaking out in Illinois and around the country? For that matter, uh, around the world. How are you responding to late-term abortion? The plight of refugees. The things that are uh, going on in your neighborhoods, the brokenness in families today, the incidents of 
uh, increasing uh, addictions. Social injustice here, social injustice there. God loves us. God loved Israel. But he brought about Israel's destruction in part because Israel ignored the needs within and around her. So now I want to raise a question, and this is where I want to spend the rest of my time. And it's the question is, how do we get there? Uh, What can propel us and uh, ignite us to be difference makers, to be game changers uh, in in small ways, medium-sized ways, and and maybe in in big ways? I mean, who knows what a telephone call or a letter is going to result in? And we find the answer in verse 9, and I love this. So I continue, Nehemiah speaking, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk, and here it is, you see it? The fear of God. And I submit to you what we have at the heart of this story about social injustice is the solution here in verse 9. And what is the ultimate solution? What is the deep dive? What is underneath? It's the fear of God. And Nehemiah puts his finger on the fundamental problem going on in Israel, the deeper problem. And it's that, a lack of fear of God. Let me state it this way. The key to being a difference maker is fearing your maker. It's Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 9. It's fearing your maker. Now when Nehemiah says this, he's telling us some incredible things about himself. What he's telling us is his notions of justice, his notions of compassion are born in and sustained by his continual fear of the living God. Now let me say it negatively in terms of what's going on here in chapter 5. The fin The fin above the water, the the sin here in chapter 5 is social oppression, economic injustice, the oppression of the weak. But the shark underneath the water that you can't see is a wholesale lack of the fear of God. That's Nehemiah's point in verse 9. He's taking them back to first things. He's taking them back to that which is, is, is central. And I want to say to you today, as we talk about the restoration of people and places around us, that the key to being a difference maker starts with you in your heart giving yourself to fearing your maker. Now what I want to do is I want to unpack this. And what does it mean? What does it look like? What do we learn here in chapter 5? I want to suggest we learn three things. First of all, Fearing God means you understand that it's foundational to your life. And your life reflects that conviction. Uh, that fearing God isn't a, a good idea. Fearing God's got to be foundational. Now, now, when we talk about fearing God, we're not talking about being afraid of God. We're talking about a lifestyle of reverence and awe, humility and submission. 
because you know your God is the majestic, transcendent, loving creator and king. I remember over the years when my son Ryan would get different autographs of various athletes when we were at different games. And I have this picture of my son as an eight, nine-year-old just standing, waiting for the guy to come down the line to sign some autograph, some famous athlete. And Ryan's, Ryan's not afraid. He's in awe. Uh, he, he's uh, full of admiration and inspiration. And he gets an autograph, it's signed on a baseball or a piece of paper or a shirt or, or whatever, and man, that becomes a, a treasure. When we talk about fearing God, we're not talking about being afraid. We're not afraid of the athlete. We're talking about reverence and awe and humility and submission and admiration that creates inspiration because you take what the Bible has to say about your God seriously. And you're not just a student of the Bible for, being a, for the sake of being a student of the Bible. You're a student of the Bible, so the Bible can teach you about Jesus. It can teach you about God. It can teach you about the Holy Spirit. And as Christians, we celebrate the fact that our God, on the one hand, is an absolute being. On the other hand, he is personal. He is absolute in the sense that he is self-sufficient, self-existent. He doesn't depend on anything, but everything depends upon him. He is the absolute transcendent being of the universe. But on the other hand, he is personal. He sees, he watches, he loves, he listens, he speaks, he forgives, he, he blesses. He gets involved. He binds up... Uh, the wounded, he, he brings about healing. And when you get both the transcendence and what we call the imminence, the presence of God, that God's greatest desire on the present side, his present side, is that you and I might have fellowship with him. I mean, think about that. The God of the universe, I can't wait for you to have fellowship with me. Will you? Well, sorry, God, the game's on. But when we get this and we give our lives to, uh, to building this foundational truth and we begin the experience, a lifelong experience of living in awe of God, you know what it does? It compels us to serve. To seek to meet needs around us. But if we don't get if we don't understand this foundational, you and I are just going to be like these wealthy, indifferent, arrogant Jews in Jerusalem. So let's go back to chapter 1. This is the end of Nehemiah's prayer, and I want you to see something. He says, Lord, let your, he's getting ready to go, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants, and notice this, who delight in revering your name. And so I wonder this morning, do you delight in fearing God, in worshiping him? I mean, when we get together and the band is leading us in worship, is it a delight of yours? 
Is fearing God a delight or a duty? Uh, in a wonderful sermon on this passage, a woman by the name of Paige Brown records an interaction from the 4th, 5th century A.D. between one of the great preachers of Asia in the early church. His name was John Chris Ostom. And because he was such a great preacher, all scores and scores of people were coming to Jesus Christ. But the emperor got offended because Christostom's preaching was so direct. So there's this dialogue that takes place between the emperor and Christostom, this famous preacher. And the emperor says, if you don't start changing your message and stop preaching the way you are, I'm going to banish you. Typical form of punishment in the early centuries of the church. And Christostom said, You can't banish me. This world is my father's house. And the emperor, a little flustered perhaps, said, well, then I will take away all your treasures. He said, you can't take away my treasures. My treasures are in heaven. Then I will cut you off from others. You can't cut me off from others, he said. My best friend is in heaven. His name is Jesus Christ. And then the emperor said, I'm going to kill you. And Christostom said, you cannot kill me. When I came to Jesus Christ, I was crucified in Christ. I had been raised from the dead. And now I am the adopted child of the king of kings. And I will live in his family forever. Now can you say that? Could you see yourself saying that to a friend, not to mention an emperor? Difference makers fear God. It's foundational. So when we come to chapter 5, I want you to understand Nehemiah's greatest fear as he's praying about the wholesale fear of God growing Uh, among Israel, his greatest fear isn't offending the Jewish leaders. By the way, the very people he needed the most to pull off the uh, ongoing rebuilding project, he's not afraid of offending his team leaders. He's afraid of fearing God. So let me go on. The second thing I want you to see here in Nehemiah chapter 5 is not only is this fear foundational, but it's relational. And what I mean is if you fear God, it doesn't drive you away from people in pride. It propels you toward people in compassion and humility. Why? Because the fear of God trumps all the other fears we have that hold us back. Now look at this in the text. This is verse 9, this is verse 11. And I put these two verses together. Nehemiah says, walk in the fear of our God and give back to them. Do you see the connection? The fear of God drives you upward and outward. And if you are a man, a woman, a student that fear God, then you're going to give back. You're going to take care you're going to figure out what is that one area or those, these two areas where you can serve, where you can plug in. Is it point A? Is it safe families? Is it this? Is it that? Is it refugee ministry? 
This is exactly what Jesus says, by the way, in the first and the second commandment. Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? That you should love the Lord your God with all. Your heart, soul, and mind. Oh, and Jesus, what's the second? That you should love your neighbor as yourself. Now let me take this a step further and show you something really cool in this passage. And here what I'm getting at is uh, the way we're going to get to being a difference maker is by fearing God. And the way we get to fearing God and being a difference maker is by responding with everything in us. So follow this. Nehemiah hears the outcry, and we read he's very angry. So what is he doing? He's responding emotionally. Now, there's good anger and there's bad anger. There's righteous anger and unrighteous anger. And this is a great illustration of righteous anger. And there ought to be things around you that really tick you off. It's righteous anger. So Nehemiah responds emotionally, but he doesn't stop there. He also responds intellectually. He said, I pondered. I I took a time out. I began to think through the issues. I began to think what the Word of God says about charging interest. I began to think about the current situation we're in and what the needs of our people are. And I thought and I thought. He responds emotionally. He responds intellectually. And then he responds volitionally with his will, and he acts and I accuse the very people I need the most. A difference maker responds in all three ways. With everything we are, our mind, our emotions, our will. Now, we can't do this with everything. Again, I'm not trying to pile on, but we can do this in some ways. And so what we want to avoid is seeing something that makes us angry and we just stop with a visceral response. What we want to do is we want to avoid uh, reading an article and and getting worked up about it, uh, but never um, engaging our uh, volition and acting. Difference makers. Nehemiah was a difference maker because his response was emotional, it was intellectual, and it was volitional. Now, let me just uh, parse this for a moment. Let's say there's a person in your life you can't forgive. If you can't forgive someone, or maybe there's a group of people at work in your neighborhood and you you kind of find yourself holding a grudge, you resent some of the the things they're they're doing in your neighborhood, or or, or maybe it's in your marriage. If you can't forgive, if you're holding these grudges, I, I want to say to you, you're not fearing God because you're only responding emotionally and you're stuck in your emotions and you haven't gotten to the action of extending forgiveness or let's say you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you don't give financially you don't give to your church you don't tithe You don't give 10%. Uh, You don't give financially to meet some needs uh, around you. Well, you know where you're stuck? 
you're stuck in your head. Well, I can't give anything away because I'm going to need all this myself. And based on God's word, in that area, you're not fearing God. And you know, um, I've just been doing this too long. not to realize that there's all sorts of people in the church uh, and we all are like this in different ways where we mean well, but we don't act because the act is costly. It's dangerous. It's risky. People who fear God are aware of the problems around them. Uh, They're aware of the issues, the brokenness. Uh, and, and they ponder them, they think about them, they're passionate about them, and then they find one or two areas and they go for it, they invest in that cause. I want to suggest to you that I think one of the reasons uh, larger churches around the country are, are, are struggling, churches around the country are struggling, uh, one of perhaps the reasons, I don't want to overstate this, that uh, there is more decay in our country than any of us want is because too many of us as pastors and lay people settle for the minimum. We serve the minimum. We give the minimum. We're functionally minimalists when it comes to the kingdom of God. And there's lots of reasons for that, but one of them is that we seek the maximum amount of pleasure. I have been to the Amazon jungle and Siberia. I've been to Asia and Africa multiple times. I remember being really scared for our protection uh, on a trip to Morocco years ago. And before I go or when I get back, there usually will be just one or two people say to me, you know, I wouldn't have taken that trip, Rob. I I wouldn't do that. I I couldn't do that. And, And I think to myself, well, In my flesh, I wouldn't do that either. But if Jesus Christ is my king and I fear him, how in the world can I ever say I won't? And one of the ways you can know you're moving down the road of fearing God is you're not saying I won't. You're saying, God, give me wisdom because I have to choose. So I'll go across the street. I'll go across the hallway. I'll go across the neighborhood or across town. I'll go across the world. Why? Because I fear God more than I fear my fears. And hear me. The fear of God carries you upward and it carries you outward. So my question for you is, what's your outward? Finally, let me go on here. Fearing God is also sacrificial. But please, when I say that, I, I, I want you to understand something. This is really important for how we approach living the kingdom life. Uh, sacrificial and pleasurable are not mutually exclusive, okay? After Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, he's facing one problem after another. In chapter 3, it's a lack of resources. In chapter 4, it's the opposition from enemies. In chapter 5, it's the extortion that's taking place, the indifference. 
So we go back to verse 1 of chapter 5, and there's a great outcry, not just an outcry, but a great outcry because Jews are starving. And then when we come to the end of the section we read, all of a sudden there's incredible celebration. The meeting worked, the confrontation worked. Uh, the risk-taking on the part of Nehemiah worked, and the people are praising the Lord. The, can you picture they're apologizing? They're hugging? Uh, some are asking for forgiveness? Now, I do not, let me just say this, I've been a pastor a long time, there are certain parts of the ministry I just do not like. And in my worst moments, they drive me crazy. But none of them can compare to the rewards. I mean, when somebody calls you and says, hey, hey thanks for speaking into our marriage. Uh, I, I know things were bad. I, I know things were ugly. But I just want you to know, man, we're turning around. When a parent calls and says, hey, thanks for praying for, for my child. I want you to know my child has come back to Jesus. When somebody says, uh, thank you for uh, the rooted group, our, our, our life group, man, the word of God is changing my life. Or a couple of us have come to Christ. It doesn't get any better. And that's exactly what's going on here. You know, contrary to popular opinion, the best life, the good life, the kingdom life, isn't a life free from problems it's a life that faces problems, steps into problems, and seeks to resolve problems and the problems of others because you fear God, because you care about what's going on uh, with other people. And by the way, do you really think Noah liked animals that much? Do you think Abraham got really excited about leaving his homeland and everything that was familiar to follow God when God wasn't even telling him where he was going? How about Joseph? Do you think Joseph got all excited about being cut off most of his adult life uh, from his family? Uh, did Ruth like losing her husband? John the Baptist losing his head? Paul like being in prison? These people did not love their assignments, but they feared God. So they joyfully sacrificed. This is so important to us. It's one of our values. It's, this is our last value as a church. We will seek and care for the under-resourced and the vulnerable. We want to be difference makers. This is why we're so deeply involved in dif different issues around the world and in West Chicago. But it will always require sacrifice that is rooted in our fear of God. It's a fear of God that propels us and sustains us. So let me give you a couple steps here. If you've been stuck, man, just pray that God will open your eyes and stir, start stir, searching, seek to discover some of the issues around you. Or maybe you're starting to take some first steps. Let me encourage you to take on one thing. And here's a list of different things that you can step into, and there's thousands more. Or start giving generously of your time, your money, your skills. This is a wonderful definition of love, by the way. What is love? Love is you disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of others. It's what you do every day in a healthy marriage, as a healthy parent, as a healthy friend. I will disadvantage myself for your advantage. Now, let me just say this. 
Do not misunderstand. This is not something we can do on our own. We need a power from outside us to live this way. And the power comes from Jesus Christ. And as we sang earlier, from his death and his resurrection, from the Holy Spirit now uh, living inside us. And so the point isn't be like Nehemiah. The point is learn from Nehemiah and fix your eyes on Jesus. After all, Nehemiah had no idea what was going to cost him to rebuild Jerusalem, but Jesus knew exactly what it was going to cost him to become a man. And yet Jesus came anyway and gave his life for you and me. Why? Because he loved people and because he feared God. And for him, for Jesus, the fear of God was foundational, it was relational, and was sacrificial. And may that be true in our lives. Because it's fixing your eyes on Jesus and the wonder of the gospel that ignites a fear of God and sustains a fear of God. Now, I wish I could stop here, but I have two announcements and I've gone over. And these are not easy to make announcements. There's a sadness to these announcements. And the first is Pastor Will Franco, our campus pastor in Streamwood, and our, part of our preaching rotation here, Will's been preaching once a month for the last year, has accepted another job as a senior pastor in a church in Memphis, Tennessee. I came from Memphis. Will is going to Memphis. And I want you to know we are going to, Will's been on our staff for almost eight years. We're going to miss him. We love him. Will loves us. This is hard for Will. But he felt before the Lord it was time for him to step into a senior pastor role. And Will will be here on the platform. We will pray for him three weeks from today, and I want you to be praying for the Franco family. Will's making that announcement today in Streamwood. And the second thing I want you to know is earlier this week, Lon Allison got really bad news. And the cancer in his liver and the cancer now that is metastasized to his lungs is growing rapidly. And new tumors are emerging. And Lon and Marie know what this means. And so I want to ask you to pray for them, to pray that God would ease the pain of the tumor pain, that God would uh, strengthen Marie, strengthen Lon, comfort them and, and their three children. And I want you to bow and pray with me right now. Uh, Father, if we are anything as followers of Christ, we are part of a family. And so we want to pray for the Francos and this um, wonderful opportunity that's ahead for Will and Lily and pray that you would bless them and pray that you would go before them. And you would um, use them in incredible ways in the months and the years to come. Use will to bring healing through the word of God. And speaking of healing, we pray for Lon and Marie and ask that you would heal their hearts now 
as it appears you're not healing Lon's body. Comfort them. We love this family. Give them grace. In Jesus' name.